Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, look, uh, I, I know that a lot of you spent the weekend obsessing about whether or not Donald Trump wore his pants on backwards and whatever you wanted to believe. That wasn't true. OK, that, that turned out not to be the case. But as I said in my newsletter this morning, I, I do want you people to focus because no, Donald Trump did not wear his pants backwards, but there was a lot of crazy this week and we have to catch up with all of it. So who better to talk about that than with our, our own Mona Charon, the host of her own podcast, Beg to Differ. So Mona, happy Monday. Happy Monday, Charlie. Good to be with you. Okay. I just have to start with the this this doom loop of crazy. Um, yep. you, you can't exaggerate. The, the New York Times over the weekend had this story about what was going on in the Trump White House in the final weeks where they were so desperate to overturn this election. Mark Meadows the chief of staff repeatedly pushed the Justice Department to investigate absolute batshit crazy conspiracy theories about the election. Um, includes a, this is the Times, a fantastical theory that people in Italy had used military technology and satellites to remotely tamper with voting machines in the United States and switch votes for Trump to votes for Biden. I, I just... I, the fact that we're even talking about this stuff is just an indication of of how we're in this 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 downward spiral of nuttiness. I yeah, um, we've always had nuts, plenty right. of them, right? And right. Um, we've always had conspiracy theories. Uh, I give you the JFK assassination and the entire industry of conspiracies yes. that it spawned. Uh, but what we have now is conspiracy thinking having been elevated to the mainstream and yes. having been put in charge of the country uh, for a while. And um, that's new. That well, is new. Well, also new and maybe even newer than that is, and this is why I use the phrase doom loop of crazy. So you have these crazy ideas that are out there festering in the swamp. Maybe somebody like my pillow guy picks it up and then whispers it to the former president uh, and perhaps future president of the United States who apparently believes it or pretends to believe it. But then it gets out into the mainstream and you have tens of millions of people that believe this stuff. You know, yeah. the, when you have 53% of Republicans saying they believe that Donald Trump is still the legitimate president. And over the weekend, uh, for people who think that this is uh, just sort of a one-off, uh, the president uh, spoke in North Carolina. Very. Did you watch it at all, by the way? Low no, energy. I didn't. No, didn't. He, he wore his pants on straight, but but it was very low energy. It was a very it was a very odd event. It was not carried by any of the cable networks. Uh, major. I cable heard he spoke for ninety minutes. It's sort of like, like Castro yeah, Fidel length. Castro length, yeah. Close, nine, closing nine, in on. 90 minutes of low energy uh, Trump. Whining. And, <laughs> and, of course, while the Republicans' official position is that we want to move on, we don't want to relit it, we can't have a commission or anything to look at January mm -hmm. We need mm -hmm. to move on. Trump is not moving on, and he's using the phrase crime of the century. Let's play Trump number one. That election will go down as the crime of the century, and our country is being destroyed by people who perhaps have no right to destroy it. Okay, this may not be like right on point, but Mona, who who actually are the people who do have the right to destroy it? I mean, he's making he's making a distinction, right? There are some people yeah. who have, you don't have the right to destroy it. 
Well, only we, what, we <laughs> only us good Republicans have the right to destroy the country. You, you, you immigrants from shithole countries, you do not have the right to destroy this country. You have to be here and you have to have, you know, <laughs> well, I don't know what. Yeah. yeah. Um, let, let me say a word if I could about that 53% of Republicans yeah, you know, who nice. believe. All right. So people who are less alarmist than you or I would say, um, look, uh, people see that poll and they know that it's a marker of identity. They know that what the pollster yeah. is asking is, you know, who do you like better, your team or my team? And though, and therefore they they answer, oh well, I think Trump is the legitimate, and and they don't actually believe that he, the election right. was stolen. They don't actually, whatever. So that's the optimistic take on it. Um, but um, but regarding. Uh, destroying the country regarding the 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 election law. Let's let's get right to that because I have felt from the beginning from from what was the election day November third when he denied that he had lost um, uh, uh, through the insurrection and to this very day I've always believed that this lie was different from all the others that Trump told in its potential disastrous consequences for the country. Uh, because once, as as the historian Timothy Snyder laid it out over the weekend, you know, very, very uh, pithily, I thought, once you begin to say that the election is fraudulent and that the, the, the government is illegitimate, and then you say, and I'm coming back, what you're saying is, I'm since the election was illegitimate, I plan on retaking power through some other means, right? Not just through an election. You're not stealing it, you're stealing it back. It yep. was stolen, so therefore that's justified. It's justified, and it points to violence, it excuses violence, um, it practically demands violence, and so. Everybody who, all of the Republicans who were saying, well, let's let him have his, uh, let's let him have his little fantasy, what harm can it do, et cetera, um, and, uh, and who've joined in the lie, they are striking at the very beating heart of American democracy, of American legitimacy, of our peaceful, our ability to live peacefully with one another. And uh, it's terribly scary. It, 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 is, it is terribly scary. Um, okay, I have, one, I have one more Trump cut in case you, you think that he's going to let this go. He was on with Stuart Varney. There was a lot of crazy stuff this morning, but but he's got a little new wrinkle on on the on the stolen election. Does this play uh, Trump number two? Powerful. I got 75 million votes, which is more than any sitting president ever got. Wow, I wow, won wow, the wow. election, but they cheated. Yeah, and by the way, Facebook and Zuckerberg with a five hundred million dollars worth of phony lockboxes that he put on, some of them had ninety six percent Biden votes in them. Ninety six percent. They were like just dumping ballots. It was a phony deal. Hmm. Okay. So Mark Zuckerberg not only is an all around jerk, but spent a half billion dollars to create these phony lockboxes that were stuffed. You see. You see. By the way, though, look. I mean, there's a certain crazy sense there where you connect the dots. Big tech is evil, and they stole the election. Mark Zuckerberg, villain. It's. Just, but that's a new one, as far as I could tell. 
Yeah, uh, though he he did return to one of his greatest hits. You know, when he turns on people and and or if anybody criticizes him uh, or does anything he doesn't like, you know how he always uh, would say, "Oh, they came to me and begged for a job," or "They came to me and begged for money." I I saw that over the weekend. He said that uh, there'd be no more meetings with Facebook, which they demanded. <laughs> you know, no, there'd be no which more. They wanted. Yeah, there'd be no more dinners. Dinners. Dinners, dinners uh, with Zuckerberg. Yeah. So here's the good news is the Liz Cheney is not backing down in any way. There's so few uh, Republican voices. And I mean, this I, I feel like we've said this over and over again. But even the Republican voices that originally called out uh, the, the big lie, most of them have you know fallen silent. But but Liz Cheney keeps going and she was uh, on the Axe Files. And let's just play uh, Liz, Liz Cheney talking about uh, the significance of what uh, Trump has done. This isn't a policy disagreement. This is the president provoking an attack on the Capitol to prevent us from counting electoral votes. Both McCarthy and Scalise, certainly McCarthy, made clear that he understood that that's what had happened in his remarks on the floor on January 13th. So there was no question in the days after the attack what had happened. There was no question who was responsible then. But then, of course, Kevin McCarthy decided to go to Mar-a-Lago at the end of Mm -hmm. January. And I think that was a real moment where it became clear we weren't going to be able to move forward and focus on substance and policy because we had leaders who were embracing the president who had just been impeached. What Donald Trump did is the most dangerous thing, the most egregious violation of an oath of office of any president in our history. And so the idea that a few weeks after he did that, the leader of the Republicans in the House would be at Mar-a-Lago essentially pleading with him to somehow come back into the fold or whatever it was he was doing, to me, was inexcusable. The lady is not for turning, is she, Mona? Uh, no, and that's you know in my in my fantasies of Earth 2.0, you know <laughs> that's the way all Republicans sound, um, or at least uh, the vast majority. But um, but let me let me say a word if I can about the Democrats and uh, and their response to this yes. because um, you know uh, the Democrats keep saying that our democracy is in danger, and yet their response has been oddly off. You know, um, they, they put, they put this HR one bill Uh out there and as if that was the answer to the, the emergency that we're facing. And it's, it's a bill that was written before Trump. I mean, large sections of it are just, you know, things that Democrats have always wanted, things like public financing of campaigns and limits on what you can say and can't say and disclosure requirements for donations, which I actually think violates the First Amendment. But in any event, um, it doesn't deal, as the New York Times editorial board even said um, recently, it doesn't address the big issue before us, which is the Republicans uh, attempting to empower state legislatures, for example, to tamper with the votes of uh, of their own uh, state uh, citizens. And if and if they don't address that, you know, then they're not serious about the threat that we face. And they need to just back away. Well, of course, Manchin has done this for them. Manchin has said he's not going to break the filibuster to, uh, to vote, you know, pass mm-hmm. this bill. And therefore they are, they need to hurry up and get something narrower, some voting rights legislation that's much narrower and much more focused on the real threat. 
Boy, I could not agree with you more on all of this. There, there's a real mismatch between the this this existential threat that the Democrats uh, say they understand and HR one, which is really bloated. I mean, I wrote about yeah. this back in March. I mean, the the mansions announced me yesterday shouldn't have surprised anybody. It's been very very clear this bill was not designed to pass. It was designed to satisfy the base and various other interest groups. It is bloated. It's overstuffed. And as you point out- 800 pages. Dubious constitutionality. It does all sorts of things. And let me just read you for people who think that, oh, you you conservatives, you don't know. No, this is the New York Times editorial board over the weekend said, in the face of these threats, Democrats in Congress have crafted an election bill, H.R. 1, that is poorly matched to the moment. The legislation attempts to accomplish more than is currently feasible while failing to address some of the clearest threats to democracy, especially the prospect that state officials will seek to overturn the will of voters. So everybody's got to take a deep breath about what Manchin did. It was completely inevitable. He's not wrong about the bill. Uh, Democrats have been warned over and over and over again, focus on something more narrowly crafted. They have the John Lewis uh, Act right Mm -hmm. in front of them, Mm -hmm. uh, which is much more potent. So this one decision is not the death of democracy. And Democrats really do need to, um, you, you know, I mean, I, I, we, you know, I, I don't want to be too harsh here, but they do need to get their act together on all of this. I, I yeah. see these reports that the progressives are about to break. They're just not going to take it anymore. Well, OK, uh, excuse me, math here, people. What are you going to do? So you're going to demand the Biden administration not deal with centrists, not deal with Republicans. And how is that going to work for you? I mean, exactly yeah. what does what what is the end game of that strategy? And this is what frustrated me about the Tea Party and the Ted Cruz's. What is your end game other than to strike a pose? I sat for 90 minutes with Ted Cruz back when he was conducting that uh, so-called filibuster, which wasn't a real filibuster. And I kept asking him, what is your end game? What is your end game? What do you hope to accomplish? And he couldn't answer it because, of course, the fact was the, the, the purpose was merely performative. He didn't have any plan. He didn't have any hope of actually accomplishing anything other than elevating his own profile. No, I, I remember that well. Okay, so one of the things I really want to spend some time talking with you about is is about the piece you wrote last week about China and the one-child policy. And, and I've really been thinking about this all weekend. Uh, why why China is not a pariah nation? Uh, why China is held with it? And I want to get to that. But before we do, because because China really is this, we, we talk about authoritarian regimes and tyrannies and, 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 and genocide, and it's right there, and yet we can't deal with it. Um, meanwhile, we have, um, and, and <laughs> I may have to explain why I'm, I'm doing this the segue this way. Uh, again, over the weekend, um, the uh, thoroughly deplorable Ben uh, Dominich, uh, who had been fired from the Washington Post for plagiarism, and yet somehow has managed to keep his career afloat, um, and now has, a, 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 you know, has, I, I guess, has gotten a show on Fox, uh, the founder of the Federalist, is talking about the real danger of tyranny in this country. Now, remember that conservatives used to understand what tyranny was about, and they used to understand the threat posed by government. But it's interesting to watch how this is morphing on the right. Here's a very short clip from uh, Ben Dominich on, uh, on Fox News over the weekend. No, the real threat to American liberty is in the halls of Harvard, the boardrooms of Google, and the cubicles of the New York Times. 
Our unelected rulers are more dangerous to our freedoms than the elected. Wow. Um, I, I, saw a tw- <laughs> I saw a tweet about this in response to this from Radley ba- uh, Balco, mm-hmm. who I believe still works at the Washington Post because he hasn't plagiarized. But anyway, he, um, he said, uh, yeah, you know, all those times that Google beat down my front door and shot my dog or something along those lines, you know, it's like, um, you know, let's, let's get it straight. Uh, you know, look, I, my my uh, intolerance for the intolerance of the left is extreme. I I find their craziness really hard to take too. Um, you know the the using the wrong word and uh, and and or the wrong pronoun or whatever, and they go nuts. I I have a lot of problems with that, but it is really important to bear in mind that those are social movements. That is not tyranny. That's an opinion you disagree with. Okay, it can only be tyranny if the if there's state power backing it up. Um, This is fundamental to one of the differences, at least in the last century, between the right and the left. Right. Conservatives claimed they were in favor of small government. Why small government? Because they understood that line between government and the private sector. Now, there are folks on the left who might have excessive faith in the in the power of government to do good. Conservatives have always been more suspicious of government until now. But look, here's the, this is the point that you're making. At Harvard, they issue papers. They deliver lectures, okay? Yes. Google and, 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 and Twitter can, you know, kick you off their platform, but they're private companies. Government has the power of coercion. It can seize your person, your property. It can deprive you of freedom. It can throw you in prison. It can knock down your door. It can shoot you or your dog. Tyranny is there are no checks. There are no balances. Uh, there are, uh, it, it is unaccountable power, right? Um, exactly. None of that applies to the biggest, baddest, most evil private corporation in the world. And yet, in this upside-down universe that you have folks on the right, the Federalists and Fox News creating, suddenly these private actors become the source of tyranny, which, which makes me think that they have completely forgotten why it was that the Founding Fathers wrote a constitution limiting government, not corporations. Absolutely. Um, and uh, look, one of the things that I would say um, – liberals and the left has done maybe better than the right is that they have tried to keep tabs better on misuses of government power vis-a-vis, for example, how the police behave, right? And um, and it is really important in a liberal democracy that yes. the people keep tabs on the way the state acts and, and the state will violate people's rights and it will, uh, you know, abuse its power. And it's really, really important to be vigilant about that. I mean, conservatives are when it comes to taxes. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, no, all of that is is very um, is very true. But yeah, the the fundamental point is that the state has the power to deprive you of everything valuable in your life, including your life. And um, and and corporations have influence. They can, uh, you know, they 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 can affect the culture. They can uh, they can inconvenience you for sure. But uh, but the power is not commensurate at all. 
No, and which is a good segue now to China, where in fact you see what what an all-powerful state can in fact do. And you know, I don't think I've thought about the one-child policy for for a very very long time. Uh, and and you had a very graphic description of what it involved. And and as I read through your piece. I kept thinking about the double standards, the people who are so deeply offended at every other violation of human rights or the deprivation of a woman's right to choose compared to what goes on or has gone on on a regular basis in China, which remains a nation state in good standing in the world. So could, for, for our listeners, could you just walk us through what the one child policy was and how it was enforced and what it meant for women in China? Sure. Um, so uh, this policy was put into effect in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. The idea was that excessive population growth was a big problem, not only the Chinese, but the whole world believed at that time that we were in vast danger because of uncontrolled population growth, which was going to lead to terrible poverty and so on. Uh, it turned out to be completely wrong, as we now know. But um, in fact, you know, as countries get wealthier, their um, populations naturally, uh, population growth naturally declines. And at the moment, we suffer actually from the reverse problem. But anyway, they decided that uh, the, 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 the masters of the, the Communist Party in China decided that they were going to limit every Chinese couple to one child. And that this was in, indefinite. Now there were certain uh, there were certain uh, loopholes. If you were in the countryside, you could possibly have two. Or if you were certain ethnic minorities, which is actually r- ironic because uh, now, as we know, they are still practicing genocide uh, in effect against uh, the Uyghurs. But um, <clears throat> so I guess it would have depended on which ethnic minority you were. But anyway, this policy was enforced in a way that is staggering to consider. So first of all, privacy didn't exist. Women had to record, keep records of their menstrual cycles and report them to their employer. Okay. Um, there were neighborhood committees that were responsible for spying on um, couples who were suspected of uh, possibly hiding uh, unauthorized pregnancies. There are innumerable stories of women in seven, eight, nine months of pregnancy being dragged off to abortion clinics and having their babies ripped out of them as they scream and cry and beg. Um, and uh, then forcibly sterilized. Um, there were um, innumerable cases of children being abandoned uh, because Chinese culture um, regards male offspring as more desirable than female because under Chinese tradition, when a woman marries, she becomes a member of her husband's family. And so she's responsible for his family. And if you don't have male offspring, you have nobody to take care of you in your old age. Well, so (laughs) all across China, millions upon millions of baby girls were either drowned upon birth or left exposed in markets, by roadsides, under bridges. The, the, there was a huge black market in female baby girls that uh, you know, led to this international adoption program, but it was a tiny fraction that actually got adopted. Most of them were just left to die. So you're talking about infanticide that became systemic. 
Absolutely. And you can see by the um, in, imbalance in males versus females in China, the normal birth rate produces about 104, 105 males for every 100 females. That's just the way nature does it because males are a little more vulnerable and tend to die off at younger ages than females. Um, and so, but, you know, in China, it was reaching 120, 130 uh, males to, uh, uh, to females. Um, so clearly, uh, something was going on. And, and, and so the, the, the peg for your story is the fact that essentially they have now surrendered this war on mothers and children because they realize that they have a fertility problem in China. A huge problem. Yeah. So, you know, we, um, are concerned about our own, um, fertility issues, which we should be because it's ours is our rate is down to 1.7. So you need 2.1 children, uh, uh, babies per woman of childbearing age to have replacement level population. If you fall below that, obviously your, your population will shrink. You'll have fewer um, working age adults to contribute to social security and other programs like that and um, to support the, uh, the elderly. Well, in our country, we have a real problem because we're only at 1.7 and uh, we've been concerned about the recent steep drop. So we hope it's just partly the pandemic, but, you know, it's been declining for a while. In China, mm -hmm. the rate is 1.3, Charlie. Mm. Um, so they are really facing quite the, uh, quite the problem there. And, uh, and you know what? There aren't a lot of immigrants who want to go to China and live. <laughs> no, there, there are not. And uh, you, you, you also notice, you make this important distinction, and I think this is the crucial distinction, which is that on the right, there has been a long tradition of China skepticism, but lately it's taken, you wrote, it's taken a turn towards stupidity and xenophobia. Republicans boast of hawkishness towards China, which consists of third grade taunts like China virus and Kung flu, along with tariffs paid by American consumers. But you point out the Trump years featured hardly a whisper about China's gross violations of human decency. And in fact, Trump praised the Uyghur concentration camps which seems to be, have been memory hold. You know, with, Absolutely. With all you know, what, one of the reasons that I was attracted to conservatism writ large uh, in the beginning was that it was associated in my mind with Reagan's willingness to speak the truth about the Soviet Union and the heart that that gave to, as, as my friend Jay Nordlinger puts it, the, the guys in the camps. Right. The word got through that somebody was just telling the truth and saying this is a this is a, a vicious regime that has its boot on people's necks, uh, that doesn't allow human flourishing, that that represses religion, that that in the case of China's horrifying, um, you know, uh, moves to forcibly sterilize and abort women, prevent them from having children. Um, that's the nature of the regime. And the sheer truth telling is, is refreshing and liberating. And you don't mince words about it. Reagan, that was one of Reagan's signal contributions, I think. Um, it was a, it was almost a spiritual thing that, you know, just tell the truth. And, um, and, and so to see, um, the, the right wing critique of China completely ignore the moral side of this, completely ignore the human rights aspect of this and focus just on, oh, you know, the Chinese are getting ahead of us on AI. You know, okay, that is an issue. But it's an issue because of the nature of China's regime, which they don't talk about. 
right? That's the issue. It's not that, you know, we might be falling behind or they might get richer. That's not the threat. The threat is that a country that is itself so repressive and that exports that repression to other places um, would be that powerful. That's the threat. But during this period where they enforced, they were conducting this war on women, war on mothers, where were, where was the international feminist movement? There were some uh, feminists who spoke up about it, but they, here's the thing about people on the left. They always suspect that if you start criticizing other countries, that you're not taking the problems of our own country seriously. You're trying to divert attention, you know? And so they'll say, well, yes, of course, you know, things are bad there, but what about what's happening right here? And so... Um, there's a little bit of a reluctance. And then, Charlie, there's another factor, which is when you're really rich and really big and really powerful, suddenly people lose their voices. They fall silent about criticizing you. And we have seen this again and again in the, and this is really poisonous, but, you know, all of the groveling apologies. Hollywood, the NBA. Hollywood, yes. Basketball players, you know, all of this, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that Taiwan was a nation. Oh, please forgive me. I, 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 you know, that is just, that's not a, you know, anything other than groveling to power and money. Well, that's why, that's why my, my question, why is, why is China not a pariah nation is, is really a very, very naive question um, because they are so rich, they are so powerful, and we are so tied to them economically that nobody wants to pull the trigger on them, that at a certain point, you, you can, you can talk about South Africa, you can talk about even the Soviet Union, um, but China just looms too large right now. And, and, and that incident, much criticism yeah. there is of Israel's civil uh, uh, human rights record compared with China's. Well, now this is a really interesting point because you know you could also or you could argue that well you know why should we criticize other countries? We should be focused on ourselves. We should put a, you know have, hold ourselves to a much higher standard, etc., etc., etc. But yeah, you put them side by side, people are indignant about the loss, the lack of human rights in in Israel, and it's like okay, wait, but. But you know, China is right here, and you know, go through every single list of of things that you would use to describe um, a society that has contempt for human life and human rights, and you would come up with China, the Uyghurs, right. the treatment of women, the the surveillance society, um, the, what it has done to the culture, the the trafficking, infanticide of children. And yet, oh, I forgot to mention yeah. the knocking down the houses of people who were caught with unauthorized pregnancies. What bulldozers were rolled in and they knocked down their homes. So the the, the a woman's right to choose um, really didn't exist in China for decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I I find this to be. Um, and, and I have a feeling that this is going to be coming back again and again because, of course, if it does turn out that, that China and look, I, I whatever whatever COVID came from, um, whether it came from the lab or not, whether it was intentional or not, clearly the Chinese were not forthright, were not honest about it and do need to be held accountable. And over the weekend, the Secretary of State did say that there needed to be some sort of consequences for China. So this is not going away anytime soon. And I have a feeling that despite all the, you know, rhetorical saber rattling, this this new attitude towards China is, is likely to be bipartisan. I, I, I don't I don't sense that the Democrats are going to be 
you know, try to appease China. I mean, again, you know, the Trumpist right will make a lot of rhetorical hay, but I'm not sure exactly what they intend to do. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the whole question about the, the lab and the blame, a couple, just a couple of straight thoughts. First of all, yeah. I, I'm not a scientist and I don't know, but when they, when they examine the genome, you know, whether they can figure things out based just on that or whether they need the, 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 the assistance of the Chinese government, in which case, if the, if the assistance of the Chinese government is necessary to finding out the true origins of this virus, we'll never find it right, for right. sure. And they've already gone to significant lengths to obscure the truth and to uh, destroy samples and to do all kinds of things to um, impede an international investigation. So, um, so there's that. But the, the second part, though, is um, that I do, I do feel that that's, you know, there was, I understand why people um, were reluctant to credit the, um, the lab leak theory at first, at least in part, because there were so many crazy conspiracy theories coming out of the right that they just, they, but they shouldn't have been so willing. Uh, I understand it, yet I do fault them because look, if you understand the nature of the Chinese regime, then of course you have to consider the possibility that, you know, they had either sloppy lab work or something, and they certainly were not forthcoming, um, about the truth. So, yeah, I mean, and uh, by the way, I mean, there, <laughs> it just so happened, just coincidentally, that the virus emerged from the city that had the virology lab. I mean, you know, it's uh, reasonable people could stroke their chins and wonder. Um, but, you know, the, the press, many in the mainstream press, um, uh, were quick to say it was just a conspiracy theory. And, and, if, and as JVL points out, they did, though, uh, then later correct it, which the right wing media never does. So, that's so do, you, do you think that there are talk shows in China that are saying that the greatest threat to to freedom is, are, is Twitter and Google rather, <laughs> rather than than government officials? Because I can see how the Chinese yeah. would, would like that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't look at what's going on in Beijing and the government. We need to crack down on big tech because what is big tech doing in China? Yeah, um, it is interesting how um, th those those kinds of attacks on private on private voices, including private media companies, plays very very differently from one society to another. Although, yeah. I bet the Chinese are saying, please, Google and Facebook, come here and oppress us the way you oppress Americans. <laughs> so tell, tell me what, what else you're, you're, you're thinking about these days and keeping an eye on. Oh, I'm just thinking about uh, writing something a little bit about gerrymandering because I think we've put too many eggs in that basket. Um, mm. You know, it's gerrymandering is bad. Um, and, you know, it'd be better if we didn't do it. But first of all, both sides do it. And second, it is not clear at all based on what I've been able to find so far. And I'm just at the beginning stages, but it doesn't really seem to be the reason for the polarization. Um, even if you eliminated gerrymandering completely, it wouldn't have that much of an effect on the outcome of elections because the big reason for the polarization is that people have, have self-segregated and uh, so many of these districts are so, lean so far in one, toward one party or another. And uh, so many Democrats live in cities and so many Republicans live in the country. And therefore, I'm not sure that gerrymandering is the golden ticket 
You, you know, gerrymandering you, you, reform, that is. You're going to get a lot of blowback from uh, from our progressive listeners, but Wisconsin's a perfect example of what you're talking about here. I mean, I think our gerrymandering is probably, ex- well, is extreme here, but it does reflect this polarization geographically of the voters. And it it is very difficult to draw lines um, that make any sense, you know, w- when in fact you have I'm, I'm exaggerating here, you know, 90% county like Dane County votes 90% Democratic. And then you have, you know, Waukesha County that votes overwhelmingly Republican. It's very, very concentrated. It's very difficult. So have you spent any time reading, talking, thinking about ranked choice voting? Yeah, a little bit. I have. Because I, I think at some point we're going to have to have a larger conversation about it. Uh, we have, you know, the New York Democratic primary uses ranked choice voting. Um, this is one of those things that I've had a mental block about for some time. I've not been interested in it. But the more I think about it, the more I think that that there are very, very few systemic changes that might actually affect this hyper polarization that we've been talking about and working about ranked choice voting may be one of them what do you think yeah yeah no i i'm uh, i'm very open to it and um i was influenced by uh, a piece by our friend ab stoddard yes um who's very interested in it and she's uh yeah so um look i mean one it might not um it, at least it seems to me on on first look it it might not you know, give us Solons and and Winston Churchills in office, but it prob it might be able to prevent the kooks and the nuts from advancing. Um, you know, because uh, because they could be eliminated, and people wouldn't have to worry about wasting a vote. And uh, so I, I'm 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 let's say I'm RCV curious. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at because I mean right now what's what's happening is that everybody is playing to just the most extreme loudest uh, activist voices in their own primary bases. And yeah. For most of these folks uh, the the only voters they care about are the primary which which explains a tremendous amount of what's happening right yeah. now in our politics. You know, why politicians are not trying to persuade new voters, they're not trying to expand the tent, they're just obsessed. But by the way, speaking of, you know, the the the, the kooks in office, I can't help reflect the the fact that, you know, Mark Meadows was for many years a um, the, the chief of staff to the president who was involved in this crazy conspiracy theory about, you know, Italy and everything. Uh, leader of the Tea Party, and then he, of course, goes on, you know, to leave the House, and he's replaced in the House by Madison Cawthorn, uh. who, who is, who to, to say is not the brightest bulb, is putting it mildly. Um, to say that he that he is one of this new breed of politician that is not interested in governing or accomplishing anything at all. He's just interested in, you know, you know, you know, have, have, having an internet persona and issuing press releases every time he opens his mouth and talks about the Constitution, we, we collectively get dumber. Um, yeah. But, but I mean, it's it, like you had this one district. How does this happen? Well, it's because it's it's an overwhelmingly Republican district. So maybe gerrymandering is a factor or maybe geographical sorting is a factor. But um, all you need to get is a you know minority of the vote in a primary and you're off. You're there. Yeah. You're in Congress. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and American oh. get an American gets dumber. And uh, I don't know if um, if all open primaries would be a solution, you know, would be would would achieve the same thing. I don't know, but um, 
But the, all of these things need to be considered and soon because we are really teetering here on the precipice of some scary stuff. No, we, we do. And, and this is this is part of the the the, the problem of of. Uh, and and it's not just gerrymandering. It's also, and we've talked about this, I feel like endlessly, but the the alternative reality silos of information where you, you, as you switch the channels, you get completely different realities. Yeah. And, you know, somebody asked me this morning, you know, what do you do about people who are highly educated, professionals, normally savvy human beings who hear this stuff and start to believe these batshit crazy conspiracy theories? And I don't know what the answer is at, at, the, at the moment. We have no vaccine for the crazy we have no uh we have no antibodies for it anymore and this is going to continue to get worse until we find a way to kind of you know break this but everything that's been happening in terms of this this bifurcation of information has gotten worse it it, it feels like it's accelerating rather than than mod modifying mod modulating what do you think i i do agree with that. Um, it's it's accelerating. Um, it it gives um, it, it does appeal to look. I mean, there there are aspects of human nature that it appeals to, right? I mean, it is pleasurable to hate people you think are evil. Um, I mean, I would bet you that somebody who um, is deprogrammed from having been a QAnon adherent, let's say, would be a little less happy for a while after leaving the cult because it's so empowering and, and, and exciting to think that you are on the side of the angels fighting these, these, these child predators. Right. right? And, um, and so, you know, that, that aspect of human beings is, is always there. And, and the question is, how do you, um, how do you move people away from that? Um, and, and, uh, part of me gets very worried that, you know, when there's been too long, uh, a period of peace <laughs> and, and prosperity and people have not experienced, I've been, I've been reading a lot about right. the origins of World War One, and uh, the the run up to World War One. And one of the things that's so interesting is that when you go back and you look at turn of the century uh, Europe, things were getting so, so much good. better. I mean, they had sanitation in the cities, and they had streetcars, and they had electric lighting in all the buildings, and the the uh, life expectancy was zooming upward, and people had enough to eat, and things were getting good. I mean, it was becoming the kind of world that we are familiar with, having f for centuries been been very different, and um, but. You know, there's, but then people, I guess, um, were um, a little bit bored by all this happiness, and uh, the 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 sound of the drum and the march of feet and the and the you know the the call of gunfire had a certain appeal because things had been too quiet for too long. I don't know. I mean, I, I have I have two books side by side. I don't know whether you've read both of them. But one is the description of what the world was like 
Barbara Tuckman, A Proud Tower. How, mm-hmm. how wonderful. And, and then I have a book that's right next to it called A Mad Catastrophe, which mm-hmm. is World mm-hmm. War One. And, and you're right. Things were so good. This was such a golden age of civilization. And World War One was such a complete catastrophe. And it was completely unforeseen at the time. Yeah. And, you know, and th- this is this is one of those humbling things, you know, things to realize that many of the worst catastrophes were not seen by the people of the time until it actually was upon them. Yeah. And um, yeah. so that, on that on that dark note. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, on that, Mark, I, I appreciate you, you joining me on our new podcast, Beg to Agree. Um, <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> make, make sure you check out uh, Mona's uh, podcast uh, up every Friday, Beg to Differ. Uh, Mona, thank you so much for coming back on. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>